0: My name is Joe Wolf, I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities, I'd like to welcome you all this evening uh, to this event, uh, an inaugural lecture in the series of inaugural lectures that we have jointly between the Faculty of Arts and Humanities and the Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. Uh, I, I realise there, actually this is not just part of the joint faculty series, but this is part of the Department of Information Studies mini-series <laughs> of inaugural lectures. This is the second of of three this year for information studies, which must be unprecedented, I think, for the department. Uh, Also, to the great delight of our gender equalities uh, uh, program, three female professors in the Department of Information Studies, which is a really remarkable reflection of changing times, I think, at UCL. So uh, I'm here just to do two things. One is to welcome you, and the other is to invite you to a reception uh, after the lecture, which will be held in the Wilkins South Cloisters, which is just a few floors below. Follow the crowd later on. Uh, the order this evening is the introduction will be given by Rob Miller, who is the head of the Department of Information Studies then we will hear professor elizabeth shepherd's inaugural lecture the title of which you can see behind me past present and future the academy and the community and then after the lecture there will be a vote of thanks from elizabeth danbury former member of the department and current research associate in the department so rob over to you
1: right well this is a very uh, pleasant way to end the day i must say um, I don't quite know where to begin, so I'll, I'll just keep it short. But uh, Elizabeth's uh, been here longer than me, right? It's the first thing to say. So I don't quite know kind of what happened in that, I think, six years before. Uh, you, you were here six years before me, so slightly uh, longer than me. Um, she's obviously made a fantastic uh, contribution to the department and continues to do so. Um, I think, you, you know, for a start, you, you put the archives programming on a, on a great... Uh, on a great footing uh, i'm sure elizabeth will have more to say about that later on um, but and then more recently perhaps um, she's just uh done a terrific amount of work in 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 kind of um fostering a research culture in the department in general uh evidently i mean uh, she's just been so good on that front and in particular recently helping to get us through the ref um so thank you very much For that and she's just uh, she's a fantastic role model in in uh, every respect I mean I've I've worked with her on a few things and everything that I've worked uh, with her on I've sort of ended up thinking oh yes Elizabeth you show you know that's the way to do it you've shown me exactly how to do it so uh, that's what I think and I think um, she's probably about to do the same with her inaugural lecturer so so um, I'll leave you to it thank you very much
2: of archives and records management are a very rare breed. Currently, we have reached an all-time record number in the UK of three. And this is the third ever inaugural in the subject here at UCL. My immediate predecessor was Professor Jane Sayers, the first person to hold a chair in archive studies a quarter of a century ago. The first inaugural lecture at UCL was given almost 70 years ago, entitled The English Archivist, A New Profession. It inaugurated a new diploma course in archive studies, which marked the transition to the modern archival profession, producing, quote, badged and certificated archivists. Sir Hilary Jenkinson, the speaker on that first occasion, confessed in his introduction to considerable trepidation about doing justice to his subject. I would echo that here today. Being introduced by the Provost of UCL and the Master of the Roles added to his anxiety. At least I only have to worry about the dean and my head of department. I have been thinking about the public role of the archivist. What Jenkinson in his 1947 lecture called the most selfless devotee of truth the modern world produces. Jenkinson told us that the archivist's career is one of service. He exists in order to make other people's work possible. Elsewhere, Jenkinson stated, the archivist should not import into the collection what we have been most anxious to keep out of it, an element of his personal judgment. In other words, archivists should leave their own views aside, should be detached and impartial, should not leave any trace of themselves on the archive, should not be seen and should not be heard. This notion of anonymity is a trope in archival discourse. But in their actions, archivists do leave impressions on the archive. We are simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. Do archivists document themselves? Is the archival voice heard? Or are we what Derrida called sans papier, the undocumented, the persons without identity papers? Derrida examined the link between archives and identity naming and existing, silence and presence. His reflections on secrecy and openness, the past leaving its traces in the future through the archive, and the influence of technology on the archive, find their way into modern archival science literature. He asked, what becomes of its archive when the world of paper is subordinated to new machines for virtualization. Is there such a thing as a virtual event, a virtual archive, or one might add, a virtual archivist? Archives and archivists are discussed in the historical, literary, and feminist literature more than in archival science. Voices from other disciplines are more numerous and louder than ours and we are in danger of being drowned out, repressed, excluded, and obscured. I will try to correct the balance a little today. I want to draw an analogy with the public voice of women, the right of women to be heard in the public discourse, and the presence of women in history and in the archive. Mary Beard, in a recent lecture, reminded us that Telemachus exerted his power over his mother, Penelope, telling her to go back up into your quarters and take up your own work, the loom and the distaff. Speech will be the business of men, and off she goes, back upstairs. It's a recurring theme in fairy tale myth and legend. Richard Strauss's opera, Die Frau in a Schatten, which I saw recently at Covent Garden, is among other things about women's struggle to find their identity and place in the world. In the libretto, Barrack's brothers exclaim, Wer achtet ein weib und geschrei eines Weibes?" Who takes any notice of a woman and the whining of a woman? There has been recent media coverage of women's right to speak, following a successful campaign to get a woman, Jane Austen, on the ten-pound banknote. For daring to speak, Caroline Criado-Perez, given the epithet, the feminist campaigner, was subject to trolling and death threats on Twitter. Jane Austen described the irrelevance of history to the domestic experience of women, being The quarrels of popes and kings, with wars and pestilence in every page, the men so good for nothing and hardly any women at all. In the 19th century, women's exclusion from the public sphere was perpetuated by the practices adopted by historians engaged in creating the new discipline of history in universities. Leopold von Ranke's documentary seminar teaching, based on his archival research in Austria, emphasized facts over concepts, the centrality of politics to the study of history, and tended to privilege national consciousness and state archives, popes and kings, if you will. The presence and absence of women in modern historiography has been addressed by Bonnie Smith and Mary Spongeberg Women historians, such as Sarah Taylor Austin and Mary Berry, made use of, quote, unusual sources, such as diaries, travel accounts, and memoirs. As a result, women who attempted to write history were rarely considered real historians. Rather, they have been characterized as biographers, historical novelists, political satirists, genealogists, writers of travelers' tales, collectors of folklore, and antiquarians. Local history, genealogy, personal, domestic, and community interests, characterized by Philippa Levine as the domain of the amateur, and once perceived as the women's sphere, are at the heart of the archive in the 21st century. These are the archives which tell the stories of real people. The TV program, Who Do You Think You Are? illustrates the visual and visceral power of the archive as the place where people understand their roots and identity with their own history, such that they are moved to tears by the plight of their forebears. Historians have gradually recognized that archives are not merely sources but are objects of research in their own right. The shift from archives as things to archiving as process, what is called the archival turn. Ann Stoller, the anthropologist who brought Levi Strauss's ethnography into the colonial archive, focused on the force of writing, the feel of documents, and examined supposedly neutral archives against the grain. Recently, critical cultural theorists, literary, and feminist scholars have engaged in the notion of the archive. Mary Ann Deaver, Kate Eichhorn, and Joanne McCaig have considered the source of cultural authority, the nature of cultural production, and working in the archives. As Alice Yeager Kaplan remarks, conventional academic discourse requires that when you write up the results of your archival work, you tell a story about what you found, but not about how you found it. The passion of the archives must finally be used to eradicate all personal stories in the interests of dry archival report fit for a public. Historian Philip Muller has shown how even von Ranke, in his private letters, gave testimony about his own sensual experience of the material quality of the manuscripts which he consulted. Although he wrote publicly only about the existence and content of the manuscripts. All other archival narratives are suppressed, confined to what Gerard Jeannette called the paratext. Archivists become footnotes, obscure, shadowy, hidden, and elusive, almost invisible, silent, not apparent, and lacking materiality. Archivists dance over the archive, imagining that they hardly leave a trace of themselves, of their actions and decisions. In other words, archivists are barely present in the archive. Archival theorists have also reflected on this invisibility. Catherine Hobbs writes about the power of the personality in writer's archives and ways in which archivists should reflect character, storytelling, and self-narratives in their treatment. 20 years ago, Terry Cook wrote about memory, archives, and archival history, remembering and forgetting. He urged archivists to create a collective archival discourse to mark the shift from their being passive, impartial custodians to active shapers of our documentary heritage. Naismith, Brothman, Kettler, and others have written about removing the boundaries of archival context, thinking about the problematic of the archive, and refiguring the archivist in the archive. In spite of this, archival history has tended to be the history of great men and institutional archives, such as the public record office. My own work focuses on the national themes of archival history in 20th century England, examining government commissions and reports, the development of archival institutions, professional infrastructure and university education, providing the larger framework of our history. Margaret Proctor has studied Hubert Hall, author of a repertory of British archives trained in the von Ranke tradition, who passed on the documentary training to his own seminar students at the London School of Economics, including women before the First World War. We know about the first deputy keepers of the public records, Sir Francis Polgrave, Sir Thomas Hardy, and Henry Maxwell Light. We recognize Sir Hilary Jenkinson, the father of English archives, author of a manual of archive administration in 1922, deputy keeper of the public records, first president of the Society of Archivists. We've come across George Herbert Fowler, professor of zoology here at UCL, and founder of the first county record office in Bedfordshire in 1913. author of The Care of County Muniments in 1923. They are
3: well documented.
2: What about the voices of pioneering women in the history of archives? Few made a mark. Dr. Irene Churchill of Lambeth Palace Library trained at at Hall's LSE seminars and with Jenkinson, Joint Honorary Secretary of the British Records Association from its foundation. Irene Shrigley, First Secretary of the Council for the Preservation of Business Archives. Joan Wake, Record Agent and Founder of Northamptonshire Records Society and County Archives, prominent on the Council of the British Records Association and First Vice Chairman of the Society of Local Archivists. Ethel Stokes, who founded the Records Preservation Section of the BRA and was its first archivist. Lillian Redstone, record agent, first archivist for Ipswich and East Suffolk, author of Local Records, Their Nature and Care, Secretary of the Records Preservation Section from 1944. When F.G. Emerson reminisced about his early years in the profession, He was trained by Fowler in Bedfordshire from 1926, and was the first county archivist of Essex in 1938. Of the 11 pioneering archivists he named, eight were women. Where are their voices? Why, in a strongly feminized profession, don't we know more about them? Sylvia Martin's fascinating biography of Ida Leeson, the first woman to be appointed Mitchell librarian in Sydney, Australia in 1932, brings this distinctive figure and her lively literary milieu to life. It shows how much can be constructed even from the gaps and omissions in the archive. Maxine Berg's analysis of the work and personality of Eileen Power Professor of Economic History at the London School of Economics in the 1930s and the best-known medieval historian of the interwar years, provides a model. Power studied at Girton from 1907, at the Ecole des Chartes in Paris in 1910, and at the LSE in 1911, where she attended Hall's seminars. She was appointed to a lectureship at the LSE in 1921 and to a chair in 1931. Power is of special interest here because she played a part in the history of archives. Power was secretary to the newly founded Economic History Society in 1927. In 1932, she proposed, quote, the formation of a committee for the study and preservation of London Business Archives which would compile a register of archives and establish a depository at the LSE. Lord Hanworth, Master of the Rolls and President of the recently formed British Records Association, met the director of the LSE, William Beveridge, to discuss a business archives section of the BRA. <coughs> However, the LSE launched an independent council for the preservation of business archives in 1934 with a media publicity campaign. Pioneering women archivists should be brought out of the shadows. Their stories and voices need to be heard. Understanding the background, social lives, and critical professional interventions of pioneering archivists helps to set them in their proper historical and archival place and gives a voice to their stories and thus to our emerging archival consciousness. Women in the early 20th century often faced educational barriers. Few had the classical education needed for university entrance, and few universities admitted women. London University was the first in England to award degrees to women in 1878. At Oxford, although there were women's colleges, no degrees were awarded to women until 1920, at Cambridge until 1948. Women had to choose between marriage and employment. During World War I, the London Society for Women's Suffrage inquired into the employment of older, educated women on war work. In 1915, the Association of Women Clerks and Secretaries proposed a scheme for the temporary employment of women as record cataloguers and indexers in county councils. Hubert Hall proposed an alternative scheme of advanced historical training and permanent jobs for women as, quote, skilled archivists and assistant archivists. He suggested a committee be formed to investigate, to include Lillian Knowles at the LSE and Eileen Power, but I was not able to find any record that this ever happened. I want to bring to light some of the fascinating individuals whose lives make up our archival history and let them speak. I will examine briefly here two pioneering English women archivists from the interwar period, Joan Wake and Ethel Stokes. Both set up business as record agents, work that was academic in nature, but allowed freedom from formal hierarchy. Both played significant roles in the foundation of English local archives, and for this reason, they are worth revealing. Neither married thus avoiding family obligations. Neither has been yet studied, has yet been studied systematically, although hundreds, literally hundreds of boxes of papers survive at Northamptonshire Record Office and with Northamptonshire Record Society. So far uncatalogued, these papers may in time reveal something of the archival habits of the archivist, the documentary life of the record agent as well as the formal history of the archive. Joan Wake, born in 1884, the fifth of six children of sahara Harold Wake, 12th baronet, was privately educated at home. The family was well-connected, married into the Bloomsbury Sitwells and in the social circle of the suffragists. Before the first war, Wake traveled around Europe. She studied at the LSE in 1913 to 15, attending hall seminars and lectures by power. She became a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Wake began her archival work in earnest in 1920 by founding the Northamptonshire Records Society to publish local records, many of which Wake herself edited, organize lectures and exhibitions, and to acquire local records. Paper salvage drives during the war and the breakup of country estates threatened the survival of local records and made rescue work essential. Wake devoted herself to this project for over 40 years, eventually establishing a joint archive service for the borough and county in 1951. However, Wake's contribution to national archival development was even greater. She was a significant figure in the British Records Society and organized the first conference of record societies at the Archaeological Congress in 1930, which discussed records preservation and acceptable standards for record repositories. The committee set up to continue the work, including Fowler, Jenkinson, and Wake, led to the formation of the British Records Association in 1932. Wake remained an active council and committee member of the BRA for the next 25 years. She was also the first vice chairman of the Society of Local Archivists in 1947. Her obituary recorded her, quote, striking personality, at times formidable, her character and her capacity for work, as well as her lack of interest in clothes. Joan Wake wrote a tribute to her friend, Ethel Stokes, following the latter's untimely death in 1944. Stokes was from a much more modest background than Wake. Her family lived in Euston Square. Born in 1870, she was a student at Notting Hill High School, one of the first founded by the Girls' Public Day Schools Trust. But family circumstances prevented her from going to university. Instead, she began work as a record agent in the 1890s. A sturdy and plainly dressed figure with a strong and vigorous personality, Stokes set up business with Mary Cox, daughter of a law stationer. Stokes and Cox had rooms at 75 Chancery Lane over the road from the public record office, from which they worked and largely lived cooking on a gas ring in a recess. During the First World War, Stokes and Cox, with a group of elderly women, took on women's work, not spinning and weaving, but stitching windproof waistcoats for the troops. Stokes also devoted time to the Paddington Boy Scouts, acting as the secretary from soon after their foundation in 1917 until her death in 1944. She died on her way to a scout meeting in a traffic accident in the blackout. However, her place in our story rests on her largely unexplored role as founder in 1929 of the Records Preservation Committee, forerunner of the British Records Association. Stokes was secretary of a British Records Society committee charged with obtaining funds for editorial work, but she had a larger vision for English archives. She wrote a report which proposed, quote, a nationally useful society for organized work throughout the country to secure the establishment of local record offices so that our splendid heritage of records should be preserved and properly valued. Stokes sent her scheme to many influential people, including Lord Hanworth, master of the Rolls. She secured the support of Professor Frank Stenton, an AE Stamp deputy keeper of the PRO. The Times published a letter. The momentum became unstoppable. William Lahardy of record agents Hardy and Page chaired the supervising committee and provided a room at two stone buildings for the sorting and listing of solicitors' records. The Carnegie Trust gave a grant. In 1932, the Records Preservation section transferred to the newly founded British Records Association. The move was not trouble free, with significant differences of opinion, disagreements, and various resignations. Miss Stokes, owing to ill health, but asked to reconsider a few months later, which she did, then Miss Wake, but after a, a unanimous resolution expressing regret and the hope that she would reconsider, she did. The PRO records tell of tireless advocacy for archives and rescue work, mainly undertaken by Stokes after 4.30 in the afternoon when her work at the PRO finished, it closed then. For example, in six months, in 1939, 38 receipts and 91 dispatches of records were made. A huge network of hundreds of volunteers and workers around the country rescued, registered, sorted and listed records in the interwar period when local archive services were still in formation. Under the guidance of Stokes, by the end of the Second World War, records preservation work had achieved a national profile. This brings us back to the 1940s and to Jenkinson's inaugural lecture when archive work began to be organized as a profession and archival education brought the archive to the academy. As I have argued elsewhere, the provision of professional education for archivists, originally training them in paleography, diplomatics and archaic languages so that they could be handmaids of history eventually gave way to the establishment of an academic discipline in archives and records management, a distinct discipline with its own qualifications, literature, professional practices, and research. We have developed research methods, degree and doctoral studies programs, founded journals, produced outputs worthy of return in the ref, created an academic career path, run international conferences and research networks, all unknown in this field 30 years ago. So what is the public identity of the archivist in 2014? There are some excellent examples of advocacy for archives, such as the Explore Your Archive campaign and the ARA Records Management campaign. Don't risk it which aims to raise awareness amongst CEOs of the value of records and of records managers. However, we still have much work to do in the archive, in the the academy, and in the community. Archivists still leave very faint impressions of themselves in the archives. Recent postings on archives NRA discussion lists show archivists' reluctance to document themselves publicly. We keep an audit trail in the back office system, but we do not credit our work as authors of catalogue descriptions. Why are we so shy and silent? Understanding the archivist's intervention is important to our ability to interpret the archive. For example, why archives were selected for permanent preservation and what was discarded how and why and by whom archives were described. Understanding the archive gives us access to our past individually and collectively, and it helps us to see our place in the world. Archivists do not speak out and are not heard in the public discourse. Guardian journalists have been awarded the Pulitzer Prize for their reporting on Edward Snowden and the NSA's surveillance techniques, and WikiLeaks continues to be reported month after month. These stories are about openness and secrecy, key tropes in the archive. Yet, few voices in the media come from the archive, so who could know what the archivist's view is? Even when the story is actually about the archive, as in the recent case of the Metropolitan Police shredding documents relating to police corruption, and the Foreign Office Secret Archive at Hanslake Park illegally withholding records which ought to have been transferred to the National Archives, we do not hear the archivist's voice. The Foreign Office records are subject to the Public Records Act the Advisory Council, chaired by the Master of the Rolls, noted this issue is in the process of being resolved and robust plans are in place to complete the transfer of the entire collection. But the Guardian reported last week that the FCO still do not know how many files they have. Anywhere between 250,000 and 1.2 million, the latest estimate is 600,000. They plan to review 60,000 files by 2019 and have no idea when they will look at or even count the rest. Why have we not heard the archival voice in public (coughs) on this important issue? Archivists, speak out. You have a right and a duty to be heard in the public discourse. You have a public voice. We need to hear your voices from the past and from the present in order that in the future, the archive and the archivists can be seen clearly in bright light. I will leave the last word to the great archival scholar, Terry Cook, whose death was announced last week. He was a wise and generous man. I was grateful to him for his support as I am grateful to the many people who have encouraged me along the way, making suggestions, guiding, mentoring, helping me to develop my discipline. I want to thank all those who have helped me, my colleagues, my students, professional mentors, my tutors at university, my friends, my family, all of you here this evening. I am uncomfortable with the notion of the inaugural lecture being about the career of one individual scholar, in this case, me, since I know that, in fact, the work was done by a community, a peer group, a network, not a lone individual. (coughs) As Cook wrote, by becoming activists, Archivists can enable the world's citizens to open the door to personal and societal well being that comes from experiencing continuity with the past, from a sense of roots, of belonging, of identity. And that seems to me to be a worthwhile endeavour. Thank you very much.
3: It has been a huge pleasure to hear Professor Elizabeth Shepherd's inaugural lecture and to congratulate her on her achievements, above all on the, on the quality and the quantity of her contribution to teaching, learning, and research, both within UCL and in the wider information community. It gives particular gratification to see that the importance of research in archives, records management and information management is now recognised in universities in Britain. As she said, we've now got three professors, herself, Michael, Professor Michael Moss and Professor Julie MacLeod, and indeed across the world. Of course, as she again said, there is much, much more to be done and much more to be achieved but with the inspiration of scholars and teachers such as Elizabeth, there is no doubt that exciting advances and developments are going to take place. And this will be to the benefit of present and future generations throughout society. May I ask you again to thank Professor Shepherd for a splendid and inspiring paper.